Of four questions. I'm here with Professor Nick Cheeseman, expert on democratization in Africa. So to improve accountability, representation and human rights, the international community often pressures governments to hold elections. And over the past 30 years we see more and more elections. That's a fantastic success, isn't it Nick? Well it is in one way Alice, in the sense that almost every survey we've ever done shows us that people actually want elections and they want to make a say uh, in the decisions that affect their lives. But it isn't in another, because authoritarian leaders have actually worked out how to rig elections. And one of the really interesting findings of recent research is that actually if you're an authoritarian dictator, the best way to stay in power is to hold elections but not to allow them being free and fair. In other words, authoritarian leaders who hold elections but under authoritarian context stay in power longer than those who do not hold elections at all. Oh really? So the best way to be a dictator is actually to be a demo democrat? Absolutely, and that's why in our book we talk about counterfeit democrats, people who play democracy for their own purposes. There are a number of reasons why this is a great strategy. It can turn on the taps of international financial assistance. It can generate legitimacy both abroad and at home. But there's also things I think we focused on uh, not enough in the past. For example, you know, most oppositions are very effective when they're trying to get regime change, for example, to get rid of a one-party state or a military ruler. They tend to fragment when you make them contest elections because everybody wants to be president themselves. And so we tend to see opposition parties fragmenting as they go into the founding multi-party election, which then facilitates the ruling party taking control but thereafter it faces a divided opposition rather than a united one. So one of the things we argue in the book is that actually holding elections can allow an authoritarian leader to regain control of the political agenda. Divide and rule. Divide and rule. F fragment the opposition. Okay, but so, so explain to me, so apart from international legitimacy and the continued flows of foreign direct investment in aid, why do authoritarian leaders want to retain power? Is it just about economic self-interest, as argued by in Why Nations Fail, for example? Well, there's a strong element of that. If you look at where people try and stay in power, we often see that that's particularly pronounced in oil states or particularly mm. naturally rich states. And your hypothesis there would be that that generates a greater opportunity for personal enrichment from being in government. But our book actually suggests a number of other factors. I mean, for example, in the 1960s and 70s in Africa, leaving office was a very dangerous thing to do. The majority of people who left office did so through a coup, through assassination. And many of those who did were either prosecuted or persecuted afterwards. And you can actually see over time in a number of parts of the world the actual danger of leaving office. And this is particularly where institutions are weak, mm -hmm. right? So if you think institutions are strong and you think there's a reasonably democratic system, mm -hmm. you probably believe that if you leave power, the courts will protect you so you can't be taken out by the person mm -hmm. who comes next. If you know that the institutions are weak and vulnerable because you are the one who crippled them yeah. in the first place, mm -hmm. you know whoever comes in can do to you what you've been doing to everybody else. And so you're not just staying for money, you're staying for personal safety and you're staying to protect your family. Mm. There's another factor, of course, that now plays in, which is, of course, you might be staying to make sure that you're not prosecuted by the International Criminal Court. And so staying may be about amnesty. You can't be prosecuted when you're in power because you don't give yourself up. And so there are a number of good reasons beyond just income mm. and wealth for leaders to try and stay in power. Right, so... Okay, so if they create these, how do they get away with creating, with rigging elections, with creating counterfeit democracies? Don't people see it and call them out? Or? I mean, there's two types of system we see, right? So we see the Rwanda model, 
where a president can get up to 99% of the vote. And that clearly isn't an attempt to create an election that looks really good quality. It's yeah. not a fantastic um, sham exercise in which we're all conned. We all kind of see that that's an implausible election mm. and the, the, the ruler wants to do it anyway, but isn't perhaps so bothered about international legitimacy. And in that context, we can see that Paul Kagame is kind of saying, look, we have a model that works, we had a genocide, we're a unique case, and we're going to argue for a different version of elections, and we're going to kind of reject the Western position that they should be more free and fair. Or maybe to just to add to that, maybe it's not so much that they don't need international legitimacy, but their international legitimacy isn't contingent upon elections. Exactly. But they still feel that elections are valuable, right? Mm. And this is really interesting. Yeah, true. People have to ask themselves, given what Kagame does and how easily he wins elections, mm. why does he bother holding them? Mm. Our argument would be for all of the advantages we were talking about at the beginning of this chat. But the other side of it is that there are leaders who are very good at rigging elections. And there's a really nice chapter in the book, mainly written by my co-author Brian Class, mm. which is called Potemkin Elections. So it's elections that look like kind of Potemkin villages. They look great from a distance, mm. and the closer you get, they look worse and worse and worse. And these are elections in which, for example, the ruling party might use militias which are not necessarily connected to the states to intimidate people so it's hard to draw that line of causality and actually hold them accountable mm. in which there might be vote buying but it might be done in very subtle ways mm. in which there might be intimidation but as they say in Zimbabwe it's shaking the matchbox it's threats rather than actual violence mm. in which gerrymandering is done so far ahead of time that actually leaders know they're going to win parliament no matter what the vote and that happens before observers get on the ground mm. and of course digital fixes and we're now in the digital age we're seeing accusations of digital hacking of elections that are very hard for those of us like myself who don't have that digital technique uh, technical expertise to be able to tell whether or not the digital process was actually flawed or not but one of the things we argue in the book is that while authoritarian leaders can play those games to some extent their success depends on whether or not the international community is willing to look so in other words it's a little bit like a magician at a magic show right you can do the illusion you can make the elephant disappear but do the people in the room want to give you the benefit of the doubt and believe it's magic or that there's a fancy trapdoor or a nice curtain that you've used or a mirror trick right so we like the illusion we like the magician so we allow the magician to keep playing well there are certain cases where the international community has condemned elections and taken quite a strong stance you know the gambia was a recent example yeah. where that was done both in africa and outside and we can see that so so we don't want to condemn um the international observers and we've both worked for observers and with observers who've done a great job in incredibly difficult circumstances. So the book is very much not a kind of hatchet job on the international mm. community. We we see the great work that's being done and the attempts by people to promote democracy around the world. Mm. But it's nonetheless true that there are some fabulously bad elections that were approved. And they were approved some in some cases by delegations from the United States, in some cases from delegations from Europe. But the other thing that we see at the minute is again authoritarian leaders are clever. And sometimes they're cleverer than the people who are trying to support democracy. So one of the things we describe in the book is the rise of zombie observers. Observers that look like normal observers. They've got the kind of acronyms that sound like normal mm. observers. But they're set up by authoritarians to turn mm. up in countries and tell them the election was good. And of course, if you have observers like that, then your newspaper headline is not election was terrible says international community it's international observers give mixed response to mm, election mm. and as soon as you confuse the narrative mm. and you say the some for some against mm. you create that question of doubt 
you create plausible deniability mm. and the government can say well it's obviously a controversial issue we'll improve for next time but we're taking power thank you very much so even there you see a clever attempt by the authoritarian leaders to cloud the issue even when we have fairly strong international condemnation but take a step back a bit so you were saying that sometimes the international the genuine committed international observers will go and they won't and they either won't see a flawed election and, and so they won't call it out what how can that happen well, I think historically we didn't always have election observers that had long-term observation teams. Mm. So that was the period of time in which a lot of people would criticise observers on the basis that they would come too close to an election and they would miss all of what we call the invisible rigging, the What's stuff that? done ahead of time. That's things like gerrymandering, so fixing mm. the constituency so the ruling party wins. Mm. It's stuff like buying people off, ruling, for example, through traditional leaders, using informal institutions to establish a dominant position, harassment of the opposition. Doesn't everyone use traditional leaders? I mean, isn't that so? Why? I mean, at what point do we say it's rigid? At what point, you know, so so many ruling parties use traditional leaders, right, mm -hmm. to spread the message? Mm -hmm. So. I mean, so that so is everyone rigging elections? Well, to an extent, of course. I mm. mean, there aren't really free and fair elections. Mm. You know, if we go back to a kind of great theorist like Dahl, who says mm. democracy is a sort of ideal state and we don't realise mm. that we live in mm. something like mm. polyarchy, it's a little bit the same of elections, right? There's the ideal perfect election mm. out there. What would that election look like? All the candidates would have the same money to spend. Mm. All the voters mm. would have the same money. No one would be able to buy anyone that doesn't exist and that doesn't exist as much in the United States as it does in Kenya or Nigeria right how you know the only people that can run for office in the United States and seriously have a great chance are millionaires mm. and they're friends of millionaires and they can raise billions and of dollars. And the same is true in Kenya right? Exactly same is true here you have to be incredibly wealthy if you really want to run for office or have friends who are. How much did you think that uh, it would cost to, ru to, cr to run for a presidential uh, position in Kenya? Hundreds of millions I mean we know that the last election if you add everything up a couple of newspapers here did a study and they thought if you added everything up, so this is the cost of the election, the IEBC, the officials and the candidates at the, all levels, over $1 billion was spent in the last Kenyan elections in 2017. That's the kind of money we're now by, talking by about. By all candidates politics. together? By all candidates together. But obviously, predominantly, the lion's share of that is going to be the presidential election mm. and the governorships, not the, not the mm. lower levels. Mm. But going back to the point mm. about um, gerrymandering, I mean, yes, there are lots of, I mean, one of the things we try and do in the book is separate out what are those advantages that parties get that are legitimate? So it's legitimate that the government gets more media coverage if that's simply a function of the fact that the president is in the spotlight more. That happens in most countries. Yeah. It's legitimate that the government can talk about the stuff it's done in office and use the fact that it's the one who's designing programs. Can I just stop, can I just stop a second? When we're saying it is legitimate, I wonder could we rephrase this and think about what African voters regard as legitimate? Sure. I mean, this isn't a book about Africa, right? So I don't want to end up oh, no, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Sorry, yeah. getting sucked into no, the no, conversation no, okay. All right. about Voters Africa. in general. So rather than making an objective stance about what sure. is legitimate, yeah. what do voters in different parts of the world regard as So we do have survey data on this. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, most voters do not accept as legitimate attempts to, for example, censor the media, promote the ruling party through the media, unless it's natural. So they don't accept censorship, but they would accept that the ruling party might naturally get more coverage. Um, they accept that the ruling party might, you know, shape its policies in a way of trying to encourage people to vote for it, as all parties mm. do. Um, but they reject, for example, deliberate attempts to censor the opposition. Mm. So we see that in uh, popular beliefs, as well as in a kind of best practice model of what an election should look like. Where we get to a murky ground, and I think this is what you're pointing to in your question, 
is whether or not it's legitimate to warp development expenditure to reward your own communities mm. and whether or not vote buying is legitimate. And these are two questions that we ask people in surveys in Kenya, Uganda and Ghana. Mm. And they're the two questions on which the voters that we asked, uh, the citizens we asked, were slightly more equivocal. Yeah. So instead of everybody saying, as they do for vote, as they do for um, violence and as they do for media censorship, this is an outrage and it must mm. not happen, mm. where we get over 90% of people mm. saying these, these are bad. When we ask about vote buying and we ask about warping development expenditure, we actually get 50-50 outcomes, mm. or in some cases, like warping development expenditure, actual approval. And that's clearly about a history of neopatrimonial relations, mm. Mm. of the idea that leaders are more legitimate if mm. they look after their supporters, of the idea that one of the reasons you might be going to the ballot box in the first place is the expectation of those resources. Yes. And so you're right, we have to be a little careful here between what we might want to see in an election, mm. which is a government not manipulating the election by outspending the opposition by sending only development resources to its own supporters which of course creates a winner-takes-all problematic dynamic because the losing side mm. thinks it's going to lose access to state resources which is one of the reasons why elections are so associated with violence. Um, we have to separate out that understanding with what people on the ground think about elections which is that actually you know development expenditure and vote buying may be one of the things that makes people go to the polls. And Frederick Schaefer, a kind of political anthropologist from the United States who's written a lot on this, has pointed out that one of the effects of reducing vote buying and practices like development um, expenditure going to your own communities might be lower voter turnout. Right? Mm. So you have to think about these things in the framework of political morality that's operating in the country concerned. So when we, so I also have a question. So when we talk about sham elections, you mentioned how international observers might not always be able to spot that because they're not there on the ground for a long period of time so they don't see the gerrymandering but do voters themselves as long-term residents see that they're counterfeit elections and, and which voters do and which voters don't you know let me just quickly finish the thought on oh, the yes, observers sorry. sorry so when it comes to the observers what i was then going to say is that a lot of the observers especially you know really good observers at the european union mm. which usually do a good job they're typically now have fixed a lot of the historical problems that we would have raised. So they do have long-term observers. They do take into account issues like gerrymandering. They're much more likely to be on the ground earlier and to talk to local experts and to get a real sense. Mm. They will always talk to the opposition. They will always talk to the Electoral Commission. So a lot of the complaints I think people made about observers 30 years ago um, are no longer valid. Mm. But there are still concerns about the way we do observation because in many ways the nuts and bolts of it haven't changed. You know, Stephen Chan talks about kind of looking at election observation in 1980, which is roughly when we see the modern incarnation beginning in Zimbabwe and in, in Uganda and in other countries. And, you know, he says, you know, then we would have a set of observers who'd be spread out across the country, they'd watch the elections in their polling stations, they'd feed back what happened, and if it was good, you'd say it was a good election, bad, you'd say it was a bit of a worse election, and that was basically the model. And that's basically still it, right? We basically still see teams come, fan out across the country, we use a slightly more scientific sampling method to distribute them now than we used to, uh, but the observers still end up doing something fairly similar. Now, we know that most elections are not rigged on the day. They're not rigged in polling stations. They're even rigged before well, by okay. making sure only certain people are on the register and therefore can vote. Mm. Or they're rigged after in tallying and digital manipulation. And also they can be bust in, for example. Yeah, you can bust in your voters, you can do other stuff. Mm. But it's not usually going to be rigged in a way that's very easy to pick up by having two people in a polling station right. all day. But also some great research um, by George Russo and Sarah Brilli and others has also showed us 
that is a very it seems very likely and their research um, demonstrates this empirically that what you see when you have observers in a polling station is evidence of malpractice in that polling station goes down but their evidence is that that doesn't eradicate voter fraud it moves it right yeah. the ruling party sees people coming it typically knows where like a game of whack-a-mole like a game of whack-a-mole that's exactly the example brian uses in the book yeah you know it's coming so you move the rigging somewhere mm -hmm. else right and one of the things that people don't talk about enough is that for very good reasons international observers don't want to put people in dangerous places most countries in the world where observing elections have dangerous places mm -hmm. so where do you rig the election where you can't send the observers mm -hmm. for health and safety reasons right in kenya somewhere like northeastern somewhere like mandera you don't see lots of observers yeah. up there so that's where you would do the rigging and mm -hmm. the problem is if you're sending something like 150 people so each they pair them up so that's 75 teams so you're observing 75 polling stations kenya had over 40,000 polling stations in the last election right mm -hmm. so your ability to really detect what's going on with that sampling method is very very limited so i think one of the things we do need to start a conversation about is how can we design this better to be able to better observe but the final part of that story is that of course people don't always want to see what's in front of them and the book provides quite a lot of examples where it seems to us that either the importance of the relationship with the government because mm. of its geostrategic importance in the war on terror mm. or the fact that the country is resource rich means that observers find quite a lot of problems they write them up quite well in the mm. report but for various reasons it's not really acted on and here we have to face the fact that observers cannot force change mm. observers cannot do two things they are not enabled to actually intervene in an election that's mm. against the rules so they have to operate by telling the press civil society opposition and the international community and if members of the international community don't want to back observers up there's nothing observers can do on their own to make it a better quality election Sure. So wait, I have a meta-level question here. So you were saying in the beginning that authoritarians hold counterfeit elections partly to cultivate international legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, we might think that international observers play quite a strong role in Okania because then that provides international legitimacy. But how important is that relatively? How important is international observers' approval relative to local residents, voters' approval? And if, you know... I mean, why don't voters call this out? Why don't voters say, no, that's a sham? Because they're on the ground, they see it longer. Don't they, have, don't they see it happening? Sure, I mean, I think this is one of the areas in which we need more research because we don't have a lot of great research looking at the effect of some of this. Um, there are two, there's a double relationship here. International observers, I think, are very careful about what they say because of the assumptions they make about what that means locally, mm. which is, in other words, that if you actually say the election was rigged you have the risk of triggering political conflict and that could lead to civil strife and the deaths of citizens and there is some research that shows that when election observers state that an election was unfair and unfair you're more likely to see political unrest the flip of that of course but that's the danger of the international community being risk averse sure and just you know going along with the flow absolutely. thinking about short-term risk rather than long-term absolutely mm. um, and the long-term consequence of that of course is you can build up grievances that lead to much greater yeah, yeah, conflict yeah. down the line mm. so that short-term long-term trade-off mm. is not always worth mm. making mm. but i think it is understandable why it's yeah a concern. sure 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 the other thing to say of course is that if we then look at the other relationship you've got to say what are domestic groups going to do 
Now we often have very brave domestic groups and one of the things that has been shown in research is that domestic organisations that are doing election observation often actually make more critical findings than international observers. Mm. Which might be, you know, you might think in some ways it's paradoxical because they're the ones who are more vulnerable. Mm. But we often find that they're more willing to actually make the conclusion. So in other words, they might have a very similar report to mm. the international mm. observers, but whereas the international observers might c make conclusions that slightly pull their punches, mm. the domestic ones will often actually be a bit more explicit about what they found. Mm. But, and I think this is where the international community come in. Mm. If you're domestic civil society and domestic opposition and you want to launch a big protest movement against an election and then major international players like the EU and the Carter Centre say an election is free and fair and then based on that the US and UK government and other relevant European governments mm. also come in and say well they said the election was free and fair therefore we think that the opposition mm. should basically mm. move on you undercut the opportunity for the opposition in civil society to protest, you undercut the willingness of citizens to risk their lives mm. by going out onto the streets and facing mm. the security mm. forces, and therefore you actually effectively demobilize what could be the opposition. Um, and that's one of the big challenges. So you know, I think the role of international observers is important because to some extent, not completely, but to some extent it does shape the domestic response yeah. and vice versa. Okay, wait, follow-up question. Do we ever see that calling out a counterfeit election subsequently leads to better elections? So, for example, of the democratic transfers of power that we've seen in Africa, and maybe this is... Uh, yeah, so of the democratic transitions we've seen in Africa, I wonder if any periods before that, in the previous elections, people were calling them out as counterfeit, and so then they were more cautious to hold proper ones. I think we've seen a little bit of that. I mean, we see it in both directions. So I would say that one of the things we saw, for example, in Kenya, mm. 2007, the European Union did come out and say that the election had major problems. They identified irregularities mm. in the vote transmission um, and they found that in certain places like Molo and Kieni, the people they had on the ground found a different number to what was then read out at the national level. That, of course, was very controversial and some people feel that that played into the Kenya crisis in which mm. the election controversy led to the death mm. of a thousand people mm. and the displacement of hundreds of thousands. We did then see radical change in Kenya, you know, we saw an improvement in the constitution with a new constitution introduced in 2010. We did then see massive changes to the electoral system, the replacement of the electoral commission in addition to um, the adoption of new election technology. And a lot of that came out of the fact that the election was seen to have been bad quality and huh. to have been flawed mm. and that the Electoral Commission of Kenya was seen to have done a terrible mm. job. So that's a positive bit of the mm. story. The negative bit, of course, is that we're sitting in a country in which the opposition still argues that the last election was rigged, yes. in which despite technology being introduced in 2013, it predominantly failed in that election, yes. and in which although there was a big improvement between 2017 and 2017 in terms of how often kits worked, mm. actually in the last election, the vote transmission system failed again, in the sense that certain forms that were supposed to be scanned and made available through it were not. And that was one of the main things that then led the opposition to reject the election. And of course, the Supreme Court then nullified the election. Um, again, actually, we saw some improvements between the first Kenyan election was nullified and then the repeat one that was held in October. So again, you could say the EU speaking out about the first general election in 2007 made a big difference. You could say the Supreme Court nullifying the election in mm. August made a mm. difference. But ultimately, at the end of this, you're coming down to a fundamental question about political will. Yes. Even if you do everything you want yeah. to to improve an election, even if you bring in fantastic mm. new technology mm. to verify every step mm. of the process. Um, as John Githongo, the, the former corruption minister here 
an anti-corruption campaigner has put it, you know, you can't digitize integrity. Mm. Ultimately, somebody has human input into that and control over those systems, and that person can bring them down at the last minute if they want to. Okay, so it's not just about international observers calling it out. So even if they had the information, even if they call it out, even if we have the right policies to work out what's going on, the right tech, the right gizmos, how do, what long-term processes might stop or thwart or undermine counterfeit democracies? Well, look, we know the international community could play a facilitative role in promoting democracy abroad, mm. but never the foundational yeah, sure, sure, role, sure. right? And this is true of almost all aspects of democratization. So whether we're talking about building a strong civil society, affecting strong political parties, or holding elections, the international community can trigger processes, mm. you know, helping to remove a dictator, mm. calling an election unfree and unfair, but what then happens is conditioned by domestic forces. And we know this from Iraq, from Afghanistan, yeah. from, you know, almost all the countries in Africa that I work on. It's been the domestic factors okay, so that have really conditioned Okay, so what domestic factors might lead to fewer counterfeit democracies? Well, I think what, so what we need is a, we need the international community to support domestic actors who are operating in this way. That's the connection. Well, how, what kind of support um, do you mean? Well, support by calling an election unfree and unfair when they see it is, mm. because otherwise they're effectively pulling the rug under the guys on yes, the ground yeah. who are actually taking, mm. you know, risking their lives yeah. to expose the election. Um, obviously, things that are already happening, like funding civil society and other things, but there are a lot of things that donors find it difficult to do that need to be done. Mm. For example, one of the big things I've always talked about is, you know, it's one thing to say, let's bring in technology, let's put it in the hands of the Electoral Commission. Mm. But you know what? Most Electoral Commissions are politically controlled by ruling parties yeah. in non-democracies yes. or in semi-democracies mm. or whatever we want to call them, electoral mm. authoritarian mm. states. Yeah. So putting the technology in the hands of the Electoral Commission isn't going to give you a fantastic election necessarily. Depends on whether or not the Electoral mm. Commission can maintain its independence. So what do you need to do? You need to actually empower the people who have an incentive in making the election free and fair. There's only two or three real groups that do that. You know, one is ordinary citizens, the other is you know, civil society groups, and the third is the opposition. Right? So if you really want to give the people with the incentive to make the elections work and empower them, don't give all of the technology to the electoral commission, give it to those groups help those groups. Now we can't do that, or the international community can't do that, because funding political parties sure. is basically off off mm, the mm. table because it's seen as an infringement of sovereignty mm, for very good reasons. Mm. It's seen as becoming politically partisan. So I think one of the big gaps in all of this is political party agents. What you need to see to stop an election from being rigged is two well-trained, well-resourced opposition party agents at every single polling what station is, What is an opposition party agent? So a party agent is somebody who is allowed to be in a polling station as a representative of the opposition party and they basically oversee the whole process from the beginning to the end and they sign off on the results at the polling station level. But uh, when we have the whack-a-mole game, that it won't happen at the polling station, it'll happen somewhere else? But no, because the whack-a-mole game is only possible when you're only observing a small number of the polling stations. Okay. You need party observers in every single polling station, okay. right? That's part of the process. Okay. It's not going to solve everything. Mm -hmm. As we were saying before, a lot of the rigging is not but done on the day. Yeah. It's done mm -hmm. after or before the election, mm -hmm. and party agents on the day don't help with that. But party agents on the day can solve the problem of whack-a-mole because they can be in every yeah. single polling station. Now it's not that easy. Why? Opposition parties don't have a lot of money. 
getting really good well-trained party agents is very difficult mm. and in some parts of the country opposition party agents might get beaten up or intimidated mm. or simply not allowed to actually be in mm. polling stations mm. so it's easy for me to say that this mm. should be the goal it's harder mm. to do but we know that some of the most effective strategies to try and prevent rigging in recent years from the MDC in Zimbabwe getting their agents to take photographs of the polling station results to prove that Mugabe you know hadn't won a first round victory back in 2007-8 um, all the way through to Ghana in the last election in 2016 where the MPP that was then the opposition party had a mobile phone app and they were basically taking polling station results and the photographs of polling station results and agglomerating them into a central result so that they could say what the election was before the electoral commission right putting great pressure on mm. the electoral commission to call an opposition victory mm. that is the kind of strategy that we need because then the electoral commission knows if we don't call the election as it really was someone out there not only do they have a parallel set of results yeah. they have a parallel set of results with images of the originals mm. and that means that they can back up the claim and that's going to expose us to international ridicule and the international communities then going to have no option but to say that the election is not credible but you're only going to get that if you put that technology in the hands of the people who actually have the vested interest to use it i.e the opposition and civil society i'm with you right okay so i'm going to try and sum this up and you'll interrupt me if i get it wrong so one we see a growth in democratization or a growth in elections but many of those are counterfeit democracies because di dictators realize that the best way to stay in power is to pretend like they're democrats so they rig elections in various ways, playing the fun whack-a-mole game. And in order to prevent this happening, international observers might tr try to strengthen and show solidarity with the domestic groups calling this out, particularly in terms of strengthening opposition party agents. Absolutely. But I, the other thing, I yeah. think that's a beautiful summary, but the other thing I would say is that, of course, this isn't the international uh, community's kind of gift, right? So mm. we also have to get out of the mindset of thinking that the international community can or should be the agents delivering democracy. Sure, sure. The most effective, you know, strategies I've seen are where opposition parties have done it for themselves. Mm. By, you know, I believe that the MPP one uh, in Ghana was something that they came up with. They talked to other opposition parties. They went and did fact-finding missions. They got funding from a party supporter in the United States, I believe, to help support it. But they also did something very low cost, right? A mobile phone app on a smartphone is something that many of their agents are going to have anyway, so it doesn't cost very much to set up. We also need opposition parties and civil society groups to be learning these lessons across countries because they're the ones ultimately that are going to safeguard Horizontal democracy. Horizontal learning, yeah. So like, for example, you were talking about the Netherlands... The Institute for Multi-Party Democracy, yeah, which sometimes does a great job of bringing parties together across country borders in Africa so that parties can learn from each other and so that it's not international or Western experts lecturing people here who know much more about politics than okay, we do. Okay, wait, let me ask it's a question. It's people learning from each other. The final thing just mm, to say on yeah. that, though, before you ask the next question yeah. is this is not to suggest that I in any way lionize or reify opposition parties. I'm very aware that when the opposition parties win, yeah, they become the ruling yeah, party sure. and they will practice many of these things. Mm. It's simply to leverage the fact that when they're in opposition, yes. they are the people with the incentive mm. to make the electoral quality better. It's not to be overly optimistic yeah. about what they'll then do in power. No, of course, power. it's the structures, not the people. Okay, so here's the question. Here's another question. Given that would it be better for international observers to stay quiet and not prevaricate, not go either side and just and just give space or like a few weeks for, for local voices to call it out? I think there's two bits of that that are really important. One, 
I do believe that there should be a greater focus on building the capacity of local observation teams. Mm. There is a lot of effort on that. The international community invests a lot in that, so I'm not saying they don't. But I think mm. be strengthening the relationship between international observers and domestic observation groups and allowing domestic findings to play into international evaluations, I think, is a really important thing on the one hand. Should the observers stay quieter for longer? Yes. Not in the sense that they should be quiet or pull their punches, mm. but in the sense that strategically thinking about when you make your statement yeah. is very important. Mm. And I would say two things here. One, I would actually like to see observers talking earlier. If we know that the opposition is being harassed, if we know that judges are getting death threats, if we know that the ruling party is spending money hand over fist, I think there should be a pre-electoral warning statement, mm. much more clearly and boldly than there is at present, that this election is unlikely to be credible. And mm. to be fair to the European Union in Kenya, they did make statements along those lines after the first election was nullified, mm. when we saw things that were very worrying, like someone firing on the car of the Deputy Chief Justice. Mm. They did come out and make those statements. I think the Carter Centre made a similar mm. one. We need those to come out before the election so that we are prepared for the fact it might not be good quality. But afterwards, I think you're right. Fueling violence there, right? There is a risk, and, and you have to balance that up. And we were talking about that earlier yeah. in the chat about mm. how you need to be careful and you have to think about mm. the short term versus mm. the long term mm. trade off. But the other thing that I think is very important is that after the election, you know, what we were just saying is that a lot of the time the problem is not detectable on election day, it's detectable four or five days after when the vote counting process comes mm. um, to our head. When we start to actually realize mm. that although we got you know, as in Kenya, sort of two-thirds, three-quarters of the forms in very quickly, mm. hang on a minute, there's a quarter that still aren't in. Mm. Now, if you make your statement a couple of days in or even the day after polling, mm. what you're going to say is, well done to the people of the country, they voted respectfully and peacefully and orderly. Mm. Well done to the Electoral Commission for doing an orderly good job. The counting process is so far fine, and therefore, even if you don't say this, and observers often don't say this, the implication to the domestic media is rubber stamp, free, fair, yeah, and credible yeah, election. Mm. Now, observers will very rarely actually use that language, but they can't control how what they say is reported. Yes, yeah. If you waited two or three more days, yes, you'd create a bit of uncertainty, but you'd then be able to make a much more informed mm. statement about the actual quality of the process, and you would be able to then not you know, what we have at the minute is I think observers often making a statement that maybe they then wish they hadn't quite made in that way because it then turns out the election was slightly more problematic than was than they realised. And that's mm. not that they, you know, missed it or they were covering up. It might just be that the evidence of the wrongdoing yeah. wasn't necessarily available at the time they were making their initial comments. Wow. Um, okay, so I should clarify, this podcast is called Four Questions, but I have asked uh, Professor Nick Cheeseman many, many more than that, um, and it is really a pleasure to learn from you. So his book uh, with Brian Class is How to Rig an Election is absolutely awesome. You've had a little taste of it there, and I hope you go out and buy and enjoy the book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alice.